Today's episode of The Crack Podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. Not to mention with Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a website is a simple and intuitive process. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Squarespace. Hey, comedy nerds. Stitcher Premium has a new show from executive producer Mark Marone, Mark Mare, yeah, Mark Marone. Classic Showbiz with Cliff Nesteroff is a new miniseries that chronicles the forgotten heroes and subversive oddballs of comedy history. Classic Showbiz features unheard audio of comic geniuses like George Carlin, Whoopi Goldberg, Jack Carter, and many more. So check it out. To hear the trailer, go to stitcherpremium.com slash showbiz. That's stitcherpremium.com slash S-H-O-W-B-I-Z. Hello, the internet, and welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cracked, and this week we're talking about how drunk and just generally fucked up everyone was in just all of history. Uh, most of our history education comes at a time in our lives when adults are trying actively to convince us drinking and drug use is bad, unless you're like a PhD. So it kind of makes sense that history's drunk lug gets left on the cutting room floor, but it also makes history less entertaining and less hilarious, which I'd argue is never a good thing. A few examples from the site that I had in my notes for this conversation and didn't have time to get to. Let's start with two of the most wholesome moments of patriotism in U.S. history, the signing of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which I always picture with light string and flute music happening in the background while guys with their pants tucked into high socks go around calling each other good sir. Uh, what I never realized is that during the signing, they were all probably miserably hungover because George Washington uh, and Benny Frankie Babies and basically all the guys on money except Lincoln spent the two days before the signing at a 48-hour rager. So during the course of this one party, 55 different delegates drank a hundred bottles of wine, over 34 wine bottle sized bottles of beer and porter, eight bottles of whiskey, eight bottles of hard cider, and seven bowls of spiked punch. And they actually have the receipt for the party, and it also includes a $10 breakage fee for all the bottles, tables, punch bowls, and chamber pots that they broke. When you're even breaking the toilets, you're on some frat party shit. The second wholesome moment of patriotism, at least in my imagination, was V-Day, Victory Day, the day that Japan surrendered and World War II ended. It's been immortalized by that photograph of a strapping young sailor kissing his sweetheart nurse in Times Square. By the way, if you look at the photographs taken immediately before or after the famous one, uh, you can tell the nurse is actually like trying to fight that sailor off because 
she didn't actually know him. He just like walked up to her and stuck his tongue down her throat, which isn't totally surprising when you realize that it was a countrywide all day drunken explosion. It made your craziest, drunkest New Year's Eve look like church and not the fun call and response preachers with the dancing choirs. Catholic mass is how whack your drunkest New Year's looks next to this worldwide partying off of faces. And it was global. Canadians rioted and looted liquor stores because if there's one thing a riot needs, it's to be far drunker. Londoners, Parisians, Romans filled the streets and fountains and went skinny dipping in their rivers. Times Square, the location of that famous act of folksy, old-fashioned sexual assault, filled with 500,000 people who drank and Frenched strangers for so long that the mayor had to tell everyone to go home. None of it holds a candle to what went down in Moscow when they announced uh, Germany had surrendered, actually. So the announcer of Radio Moscow gets on and announces the good news at 1.10 a.m., which kicked off what might be the single largest spur-of-the-moment anything in history. Just thousands of people in their pajamas choking every street of one of the biggest cities on the planet and turning it into, and this is a quote from a primary source at the time, a sea of vodka. By the time Stalin addressed them 22 hours later, so basically at 3.30 a.m. for some reason, Moscow, which runs on vodka the way the fictional universe in Dunkin' Donuts ads run on Dunkin', Moscow was out of alcohol. That's like Colombia being out of cocaine. Venturing a little deeper into history, we find the field of cloth and gold when Henry VIII and Francis the one of France, how'd no one think of that name before him in France, uh, decided their two countries would be allies. And they celebrated by trying to outdo each other like parents the first Christmas after a divorce. It was basically the party equivalent of one of those handshakes where two dudes try to like crush each other's hands. Except it lasted three weeks and turned into an extravagance arm race. There were fountains full of wine, a 12,000-square-foot tent was painted to look like a castle. I don't know why that impresses me, but it does. Uh, it was basically like Renfair Woodstock if Woodstock had ended with the leaders of the two most powerful nations on the planet spontaneously wrestling each other. That's what happened. Henry VIII, uh, presumably drunk off his ass, picked up the French king and tried to body slam him and then got handled by Francis, which, like all good parties, ended up leading to a horrible war. Still deeper, we drunkenly stagger into the history books. We find the inaugural games of the Colosseum, which you knew Rome liked to party, but this particular party lasted three months, featured the sacrificing of 9,000 animals. By way of comparison, our biggest stadium in America is Michigan Stadium, which has a capacity of 109,000 fans, and yet was the site of no animal murders whatsoever at its opening games. Also at the inaugural games, the emperor filled the Colosseum with water and staged multiple naval battles for spectators with actual battleships and like real soldiers killing each other. 
And finally, by way of disclaimer, some stories of drunk people acting like irresponsible asses. In 1892, at a grand musical gala in Vienna, a countess dissed the taste in flowers of the princess who was holding this high society party. And then they got drunk and got into an argument about it. And then they got drunker and decided they should fight to the death with swords. And then one of the ladies who was there and witnessing this argument and was clearly a dude in disguise was like, you don't want your wounds to get infected, girls, so you better take off your shirts when you sword fight each other because she was apparently temporarily inhabited by the spirit of every boy from every 80s teen movie. And so they did. They dueled to near death with their boobs flopping around for everyone to see. And because just... Everything was made of lead at that point in history, and people's brains didn't work so good. Uh, that became a fad. There are paintings of these like proper-looking society parties where topless women in like huge frilly hats are sword fighting each other. But it's not just the girls that used to fuck around way less when they gone wild. In 1826, West Point, the military academy, banned booze on campus for the first time. And you'd think the cadets would be like, well, of course alcohol is banned. Why would we be allowed to drink? We're training to be disciplined killers. We're not allowed to have fun. What happened instead was the eggnog riot. The cadets smuggled four gallons of whiskey into their dorm around Christmas and turned it into an impromptu frat party. The captain, who was on watch duty, tried to break down the door, and one of the cadets pulled out his gun and shot at him. And rather than everyone, like, getting quiet and being like, whoa, this really got out of hand, you guys, we better cool it, they took the attempted murder of one of their teachers as, like, a cue to go crazier. They started stabbing the walls and furniture and breaking windows with their bayonets and ripping up the banisters and chopping up the stairs. By the morning, they'd basically torn the entire building down, at which point 19 of them were kicked out of school they just kind of had to pick 19 at random because nobody wasn't drunk and involved, which is crazy because Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee were students at that time. So if they'd gotten kicked out, history looks way different. All right. I actually have a bunch more of these disclaimer stories because that's how alcohol typically affects people. But uh, this intro is getting a little long, so let's get to the show. Stick around until the end for the greatest, longest, most embarrassing bender I've ever heard detailed. And of course, some footnotes. Talk to you then. What's up, UCB Sunset? How you guys doing tonight? All right, that's what I like to hear. Uh, my name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cracked, and welcome to this live episode of the Cracked Podcast! Please join me in welcoming my occasional co-host, Mr. Michael Swaim. Schmitty the Clam, a.k.a. Alexander Schmidt. Schmitty the Clam. A hilarious writer-performer from Cracked, Carmen Angelica. And one of my favorite stand-up comedians and writers about tying on a good drunk, Mr. Blake Wexler! <laughs> I love your Twitter, man. Mr. Professional Alcoholic. 
<laughs> just a guy who can really speak upon his illness. The only one with a Bud Light at the table. Well, it is a lighter beer. I'm watching yeah. my weight. Got a Pac-Man. So, Funnier Die has a show called Drunk History. Yeah, and big plug for them. Great, yep. where they, great site. Where yeah, they get out. drunk and talk about history. But it turns out they didn't need to do that because history was drunk enough already on its own. And that's what we're talking about, how pant-fallingly down drunk history was just all the time. And basically. in a strange twist, we'll be doing it while painfully sober. <laughs> <laughs> like, we have not had caffeine. <laughs> I'm on edge! It's not just drunk, though, right? We, we're going to cover... All the inebriants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Under the influence. Historying under the influence is what we're going to be covering. Yeah, and so, some of the times, like some of the things that we researched kind of made more sense to me after finding out that <laughs> right. people were drunk. Like the Boston Tea Party, just in general as a concept, a bunch of grown men dressing up as Indians and throwing a bunch of shit into the harbor is like... <laughs> If I came to from a blackout and someone was like, you dressed up like an Indian and threw a bunch of people's shit into the river, I'd be like, I am so sorry, England. Because well, so it's, it's not just a riot. It's, we can't stand for this anymore. Let's riot. We'll destroy their shit. We need to round up 18 to 30 costumes and have a quick costume change. And then we're going to do this. And people are like, no. And they're like, well, I have a few shots. Now how do you feel? Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember being a kid in school and being told that was exactly how the Boston Tea Party went, minus that they were drunk. And I was like, oh, they must have dressed as Mohawks because they felt festive. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. just real festive dudes, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just everyone in Boston is an alcoholic, and that's just what they do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just throw things into the water. See, I was, I was taught it was like a, like a historic, like, yes. We good Americans would throw the tea in the water. But, like, if you think about it, we're just, like, we're clapping for people just being, like, and then we fucking threw the tea in the water. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good drunk Carmen. That's yeah. really good. Um, Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my favorite it. detail that they left out was that uh, while throwing these crates of tea off of boats, they hit one of their own guys in the head, and he, <laughs> he was out cold, and because they were drunk and, you know, not in a mood for details, they just immediately assumed he was dead and, and, Leave then, him. and spent half an hour trying to hide his body. And, <laughs> and then the guy just, like, came to in a bunch of wood shavings and some, like, some smiths. And he's like, like did we win? Are we America now? <laughs> Which brings me to, because the thing in my brain that always excused all this, because we've covered things like the, uh, what's it called, the Congress of Vienna or whatever. Where Congress of Vienna was all, a shit show. All these founding father caliber historical notable like political figures are wasted to the point that they're like wandering down the street and people have to herd them back in <laughs> to like vote on if we should have freedom or not. And I've long heard it said that if you go back far enough, the water was so bad to drink that everyone just drank alcohol instead. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. The reason Ben Franklin's drunk while he's like framing the Constitution, it's okay, everyone's drunk. But I'm here to say 
that I did a bunch of research into this last night, and while there are a minority of reputable articles that say, yeah, everyone was drunk all the time, they all self-reference each other in like a circular urban legend loop, and all the real articles say, no, absolutely not. For a very long time, water, like potable water is available, unless maybe you're sailing across yeah. a great distance. So like, why the fuck were all the rich <laughs> just... All the rich, powerful people are just smashed just all the time. Just hammered all the time, which totally fine. is still true for the most part. <laughs> yes, uh, in but my your experience. average person was not. Right. So whereas I used to think all the people in the street were like, well, we're all drunk, it makes sense. <laughs> people were like, is that Ben Franklin just wandering naked <laughs> through the street? What is going on? Why isn't he wearing pants? I was just going to say, all you got to do is boil water, and we figured that out real, real quick. You know, all of my benders have started out with a broken Brita, and I think that that <laughs> just, oh, the filter's up. Well, <laughs> whiskey it is for the next four years of my life. You can just replace the filter. No, he's dead. He's yeah, gone. No, he is not moving. <laughs> We're moving forward. Um, oh. Well, also, I like the overall idea. There's that overall idea that history is written by the winners. So it's also written by the powerful people who were drunks. So they were just trying, like, and he was very drunk all the time, which everyone liked. They were way into it. They were really glad he was naked in the street. Everybody um, wished they were drunk, too, yeah. you know, and they tried to be. But right. he was the drunkest, coolest. Yeah. No judgment. Their wives would sometimes cry, <laughs> withhold sexual intercourse. But no, it was totally normal. That's the old-timey pronunciation. <laughs> <Intercars>. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, how can we make this more old? Oh, switch an A in there. <laughs> now you know if you want to be fancy and ask for intercars, uh, you always intercars. Well, I do know that uh, the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, or actually they did. Good, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I, Listen so, up. Uh, and also I know that in 1492, Columbus... No. Uh, <laughs> No, but uh, they landed where they landed, which wasn't Plymouth Rock, but uh, they landed where they landed because they were out of beer. So I had always heard that was because that's all they had to drink. And I, th I think that might still be true, that for whatever reason it was hard to have enough potable water on ships sailing around. So basically all human exploration for all of human history was just people like drunk driving around the oceans and like crashing into shit. Sailors, and they're like, hey, yeah. we discovered something. <laughs> but also I found out the beer they had, like fermentation was not perfected yet. So I, it, the alcohol by volume content is very low. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's more like buzzed sailing right. than drunk sailing, <laughs> which is okay, I think. Right. I've been reading the billboards. Buzz sailing is drunk sailing. Well, that's what it says when you drive by, right? Buzz driving is, and then it trails off. I assume it's fine. <laughs> oh. Nobody drink and drive, you guys. Don't drink and drive home. So let's get into some stories about really drunk people or really fucked up people. Just people we know that we're concerned <laughs> yeah. about. So yeah. NASA, NASA has come out. Uh, oh my God, we're starting with space travel on this yeah. topic? <laughs> so NASA has come out and for whatever reason confirmed that three astronauts, when they went into space, were drunk. And they're like not saying which ones they were because they're like that would Kevin be really Kevin Bacon, Tom Hanks, right. Bill Paxton, <laughs> right? But that just doesn't seem possible to me. And other other astronauts were like, "Yeah, that can't be true, can it?" But yeah, they have records where they like tested them or something. Are and they even saying where they get it or how they like? I, I guess thought they were just 
I don't know. I would want to be drunk in space. Are you kidding? See that view and just be like, yes. We're like, we're like, we're like entourage. Totally <laughs> we're like entourage to the nth degree. <laughs> entourage at the end of the episode, they always look over the city. Come on, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my one thought is that it's so terrifying when you're taking off that they like, some people just like needed to be like have a couple shots in them. To, or like, maybe if it was in the very early days, because I could see them just like smoking a cigarette and having a cocktail in the right. cockpit. Yeah. In like, like the early days of NASA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's astounding to me that they're able to get it aboard. And then I love when is the decision? Because it can't be a lot. Because everything in the ship is like weighted to the tiniest amount. So it's like, when are you going to drink your shot, man? You know, you really got to time it out. It's like a dry, freeze-dried shot where you have right. to like put granules in a thing. <laughs> or, or it's like a dip in dots of shots. Yes, the future of ice cream. You're yeah. just like chewing a shot of early times whiskey. <laughs> oh my staring, God. At, staring at Earth. Being like, <laughs> and then you know minutes it. later you're going to have to hook up the pee thing that shoots your pee out into space. It's such a hassle. Yeah, 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 because peeing is really difficult. So, uh, It's a fool's errand. Hold it in. Yeah. And with cosmonauts, not surprisingly, much more common than uh, three times. And in fact, there was an entire team of them who uh, were on a mission that involved working on the International Space Station. Uh, and they all showed up to work drunk. That's in, wait, the space station's in space, so you mean yes. they showed up in space drunk? No, they showed up to the launch. To launch hammered. drunk, okay. I like, let I us in. <laughs> We're in <laughs> space <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. so their job that afternoon involved being blasted off Earth in a giant metal bullet, aimed at a moving target traveling at 17,000 miles per hour, and they showed up drunk to work. That's just impressive. Well, it's boring. You know, you gotta spice yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, you bit. gotta. This yeah. is boring. <laughs> what am I just gonna fucking do that? That sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't wanna remember that. <laughs> I also feel like you just copy and pasted the Armageddon synopsis into your notes. <laughs> the Roughnecks showed up drunk. <laughs> I don't know if there's gonna be an audience participation segment in this one, but you mentioned the Russian thing, and the statistic I found was that in 2000, the average intake of vodka for a Russian man was 20 liters a year. So like 10 two liters of soda. <laughs> and the uh, Russian people who like have grew up in Russia, who I've known, have always totally doubled down on like, oh yeah, that's not a stereotype. Like I had a friend who said the big crime in their neighborhood when it was wintertime is homeless dudes breaking into your house shaking your liquor cabinet because it's locked and like putting a pan under it and getting all the alcohol. <laughs> Stealing nothing else and leaving and drinking a pan of alcohol. Well, it's a mixed up, drink. Yeah. And <laughs> there's, but when you have like glass in your vodka, yeah. like you're breaking all this Shake vodka. But I just want to know what's behind that, like the origin of that, and I've never been able to track it down. We're going to get into a lot of Russian a lot of drunk drinking. Russians. But... <laughs> Yeah, they have a word for a thing where um, there's a thing that happens where people will get really drunk for 
days on end, maybe a couple weeks, and just like wander around and not like sort of be out on their feet. And they have like a single word for that. It's like, it's like that's comedy. Just, I that's think it's comedy. Thing. I think yeah, it's a, yeah. a career in comedy. Right, is what right. that is. For us, it takes two words: spring break. Right. right. But they've spring condensed break. it. The third word is woo. <laughs> Um, but this is the same culture that has a special word for the person in prison that you're fattening up to eat in case the escape goes poorly. What is that word? Uh, I don't know the Russian word, but it translates to man cow or like man livestock. <laughs> he isn't a man who is talk radio host in Orlando. Anyway, weird reference. That is All right, a, sorry. No, I, it is I, right. I, 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 got interviewed by that guy and he's oh my the God. worst. Yeah. To work? Man cow. Oh, oh, you meant interviewed as a person of yeah. note, not no, to no. work for yeah. said man cow. We can all dream, Blake, but no, I, I, I did not get oh, interviewed we do to, and we do. to work for man cow. Um, <laughs> you're talking to man cow, is, is how that went. I guess we can get into Khrushchev because so during the Soviet period, uh, Yugoslavia was was sort of the first part of the Soviet Union to be like, oh, this sucks. Like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was a leader uh, named Tito. I think his last name was Tito, and he had a first name, but I didn't copy it down. So we're just calling him Tito, like, it, like it's a one-word name, like Prince. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Tito had this plan in mind where he was going to have this big meeting with Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union in Yugoslavia, and he was going to have all the press there, and then he was going to get Khrushchev drunk, and he was going to like make a fool of himself, and he was going to get the other Russian guys drunk. And instead, Khrushchev just got shit-faced, but was like the funnest drunk ever. And like it just like turned into this huge party, and like there's an actual quote they went back to the Soviet embassy, of course, and there's a quote that says, where, they went back to the Soviet embassy where Khrushchev got stupefyingly drunk and kept trying to kiss everyone, particularly Tito, to whom he kept <laughs> cooing, Josia, quit being so angry, what a thin-skinned one you are. Drunk up and let bygones be bygones. And we miss all you, you miss <laughs> us, people die, get over. And then the next day they signed a joint resolution that was like, we're cool. And because, because of that party. Yeah, and it was all made possible because Khrushchev was just like the best drunk ever. Just like Nick Offerman, like building harps at the party. <laughs> right, right. Like, I am fine. I feel fine. Yeah, exactly. I love that all that was necessary was like a cuddly drunk. Like he wanted in politics was just like another politician who would be like, I just, give me kisses, <laughs> and then I'm going to hug you, and then, listen, your skin is so thin. <laughs> it, was, it was a compliment on how soft his yeah. skin was, like, oh, you He's moisturize. Like, you notice my Where do you skin? get the what? butter? You to... notice that? Yes. I do put butter on my skin I do. every Oh, my day. God, yes. Where do you get it from? We, we should sign the treater. We should co-moisturize. <laughs> <laughs> Just, they do a little bit where they pick up the pen and it slips out of their hands. Like, oh, using the thing. <laughs> All right, let's make some peace. Come on. I feel like that only works, though, because they can really hold their shit. The injection of alcohol into the situation, like, I know you're just being flip, as you want to do, but you said, like, and because of that, it all worked out. And, like, it is interesting how half of the things that I came upon in my research, the alcohol is, like, you're like, it's almost as if they needed the alcohol as a social lubricant. And then half the time, you're like, well, that went very poorly. 
I also, I highly recommend on this theme, not Khrushchev, but it's, I think it's Boris Yeltsin. There's a video you covered recently on Spit Take, Jack, but it's just amazing, just YouTube it, of Yeltsin delivering a very good, like, everything's cool, we're cool speech, and is so obviously hammered that the funny thing to watch is not him, but it's Bill Clinton, like, trying not to laugh and eventually <laughs> completely giving up. Like, just <laughs> laughing, slapping his knee, pointing at the president of Russia, like, are you getting this? He's wasted. This funny. is hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah. It's a Camp David he's giving the speech, I think. That was the same trip of Yeltsin's where he was found by the Secret Service on Pennsylvania Avenue trying to hail a cab because he was uh, wanted to get pizza at 2 a.m. Yeah. In, his, in his underwear. Yes, only in underwear. out on his feet, blacked out. The You're most like, relatable thing I've ever heard in <laughs> right? my entire life. I would yeah. vote for that, man. Please, yeah. Mr. President, the White House chef will make you a pizza. No, it's no, I want crispy. It's, he doesn't do it right. No, I'll, I'll find the right one. <laughs> Just like you won't. It's like, it's like the real version of that old SNL sketch where Clinton stops at a McDonald's and eats everybody's food. <laughs> right? It's like yeah. that, but with Russians. I just realized that another story way deep in my notes is sort of Khrushchev's origin story. So Stalin used to do this thing where he would get all of the guys around him really drunk every single night and then like make them fight each other and like play them <laughs> off of each other. And the idea was that if they were busy being incredibly drunk and like fighting each other and not liking each other, they wouldn't turn on him. And so he like had, all, Stalin like basically rose to power on like the back of a single con, which was like making sure everyone around him was shit faced. He's just like producing the real housewives of Moscow. Right. He's just like instilling petty gripes. Yeah, Andy Cohen in him. Oh yeah, you really, you know your power structure is secure when you're like, the only way I can maintain this is for everyone below me to be just at each other's throats constantly. I mean, that's kind of how you run Cracked, and it worked so far, but... <laughs> I love that he's just like, do you know what that lieutenant said about you? You know what he said about you? He said you were fucking fat. <laughs> but so Khrushchev was one of, the guy, one of Stalin's guys, and he described the meals as being peppered with vomiting and terror, where comrades rival... <laughs> Comrades and rivals were encouraged by Stalin to set themselves against one another to strengthen our baser inclinations. So he like saw this horrible, horrifying thing. And like he was the one guy who kept going back because he was like, it's better to be there and be humiliated and be just like made to get drunk and fight than to like other guys ran away and Stalin just had them disappeared, not only from the land, but from all pictures that ha had ever been taken of them. Uh, so Khrushchev played the long game and got drunk every night and was like a good sport about this Stalin thing. And that's how he eventually, when Stalin died, came into power. Everyone else does fear vomit. You do like a jovial vomit. I like you. <laughs> I like that it's a frat rush and purges at the same time. That's really hard to pull off. One of the myths we've tackled that I was really disappointed to find out is that in Rome it was not common for the rich people to just eat until they vomit in the corner and eat again. But it's good to know that at least at some point in history there was a room full of people like 
having to eat because it's a political function, going and throwing up and coming back and being like, mmm, great, great pierogies. Don't kill my family. Does that myth Please. come from people thinking vomitorium was like a room that everybody got? Yes. Like, and it's in fact It's just because, that. yeah, in theater, when you enter out of it, it, it looks, looks like, like people are being vomited which out it into doesn't. the street. What like stage director was up in the grid looking <laughs> down? He's like, these actors look like little chunks of vomit. To me. <laughs> he, he was located in the right place, by the way, like being up rather than within the blast zone. You're all puke. <laughs> that whole myth is just based on a really sweaty metaphor, <laughs> like, like it just that doesn't work at all. One story, just because I don't want to give Stalin too hard a time, you guys. He's, uh, is, he, he also tricked a whole group of Nazis into basically almost dying of alcohol poisoning. And the way he did it was he claimed he was drinking the same thing as them, but they were drinking really bad vodka, and he was drinking white wine, which that reveals how bad the vodka was that it looked like white wine. It was slightly like yellow. Yeah, it's yeah. like a slightly yellow vodka. It's like, oh my God. That's and pee, the, baby. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> they, pee. Did they not think to stop? Like, what? Like, why, why would he they... He was like, going shot for shot with them, and he's the boss. And peer pressure. Oh, yeah. He's, the he's boss like, the this is how we make friends in Russia. And the Nazis wanted to be friends with Russia, I think. <laughs> well, that's like, in, in America, they... Congress finally made a law, so there were rules about liquor having some standards to it around the turn of the century. So I'm assuming other countries that happened later or never, <laughs> like it's probably just horrible vodka throughout the country throughout the period. That's the undercurrent of Soviet history is just everyone's drinking industrial lubricant all of the time. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's also like, I mean, this is more alcoholic than funny, um, but... <laughs> Just to yeah, set it up like that. But like also like I mean you do hang out in social circles, like you do see like, you know, like being social echoed at the highest level. Because it's it is still human beings interacting like at their worst levels. So it's like, oh yeah, like I've been at parties where it's like, oh, these people are throwing up. We're still able to stand on our feet, so let's bond. And here bonding is uh, you know, destroying most of uh, the free world. So <laughs> I'm sure there was one, you know, Nazi who could hang out with these That's goddamn Russians. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what's continually hard to wrap your head around is I would like to think if my responsibilities in life increased and increased and increased, I would feel an increasing pressure to not be super wasted at work. But history shows us just the opposite. Right. Like, the farther you get along the road of people can't stop me from drinking at work, right. so I'm going to drink at work. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me way back when, when my buddy and I were like trying to shop a movie around, the biggest, most exciting meeting we ever got with any like studio person, we immediately knew it was them because we were in a sea of room of people in like $2,000 suits and a fat old guy walked in in a sweatsuit <laughs> drinking a rum and coke and we're like, well he can do whatever the fuck he wants, that must be the guy. <laughs> the That's how you sold a Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the question that's always on humanity's mind is how drunk can I get away with being? Is like exactly. constantly what, what we're striving for. Or fucked up in general. I have a lot about coffee here. <laughs> <laughs> or it just shocks me. There's a couple really notable figures like Balzac is yeah. the funniest one to say. Um, <laughs> 
who's by his own writings and observations of people, but I'm still like, bullshit, it just can't be true. Drank 30 to 70 cups of coffee a day. Like 70 when he had a project he cared about that he was trying to get out. And he is supposedly believed to have died of caffeine poisoning eventually, but I don't even understand. Believed. (laughs) Just gonna throw out a guess, maybe it was caffeine poisoning, who knows. I don't, people must have been like funneling it into his mouth just the sheer amount of time. I don't know how you're writing anything when you're like, God, I gotta keep pounding coffee. <laughs> yeah, I was Googling caffeine poisoning and it was hard to find exact sources on it, but a lot of them were saying, like, yeah, if you try to do that with coffee, you would probably start throwing up before it killed you. You know, like you would start, it would just be too much coffee to possibly take. Like the actual poisoning would take some kind of powdered version or something. But oh. he, he died when he was 51 of just drinking 50 cups of coffee a day. <laughs> Also, drinking that much liquid. I mean, wouldn't you just be like... like There's so many reasons I'm like, you couldn't physically do it. It's like Cool Hand Luke. I just don't buy it. And you do Pilates. Here's the quote I want to get out because I just can't believe this isn't about heroin or something. Imagine instead of coffee, I'm saying heroin every time. This is Balzac in his journal. Coffee is the greatest power in my life. (laughs) I have observed its effects on an epic scale. Coffee roasts your insides. Coffee falls into your stomach, a sack whose velvety interior is lined with tapestries of suckers and pupillae. It brutalizes these beautiful stomach linings. Memories charge in. The artillery of logic rushes with clattering. And then he just like starts talking so fast they couldn't write it down anymore. But he wrote like intense epic love poems in his journal to coffee and how great it is. Yeah. He also really hated his insides. He's like, it brutalizes my life. That's a compliment. Like, yeah, he's like, yes, it roasts me from the inside out. I hate my body. (laughs) Fuck you, stomach. Which makes me imagine he was experiencing just as much like regurge and acid tummy as I think he was, but he liked it. He was just like, yeah, yeah. That's the coffee burn. (laughs) Take it, pupillae in my velvet sack the most erotic thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, I skipped over my plexus becomes inflamed because I don't know what it means. <laughs> I know what it means. <laughs> Show you backstage. That guy liked coffee. Huh? That's the coffee one. <laughs> Voltaire also. Yeah, uh, Voltaire was really Philosophers and great writers went through a coffee phase. It seems also like. speed. They really liked speed. Maybe like, it's just that meth wasn't available to them. Well, like I th- it's the same I think addiction, it was. right? Yeah, because they were all taking like benzedrine and dexedrine. I like that Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand was the writer who has the fan base that is least likely to use drugs was like out of her mind on speed the entire time she wrote both of her works. She was just crazy high on speed. <laughs> yeah, so suck it, Ayn Rand fans. <laughs> yeah. You Be should more interesting. Speed. But that's what's interesting about history. Speed was not a drug at that time, right? Right. Like, it was a, an awakey pill. That's okay. Right. It was like acceptable. Yeah. Well, with some of these drugs, I wonder if they, I wonder, like, if co- coffee, especially, I wonder if it had a period kind of like comic books did, where people were like, this is clearly the devil, because look at what it's doing to these writers who drink 50 a day, you know? Like, and then we were fine with it. And then other drugs, like, we were fine with giving all the armies in World War II all of the meth. And then, like, just kind of let it go after. Like, yeah, oh, no, that was actually right? a bad thing. I forget. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they all took amphetamines, right? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. throughout the war. 
Yeah, the Nazis yeah. were all just like constantly wired and like grinding their teeth. And oh. Yeah, well, they had it was uh, a drug called Pervitin that they gave the Nazis, uh, but it was so widely used that all the troops nicknamed it Panzer Schokolade, which is tank chocolate in German. And the idea was they needed to be up 36 to 50 hours at a time, and so they would just pop this tank chocolate all of the time. <laughs> and apparently, they, they had a factory putting out 35 million tablets just for the troops to invade France. Like, just that chunk of the Nazis invading people. They gave them that much of the drug. What was it called again? Pa- uh, the German version uh, of it? Panzer Schokolade. I never thought I'd say this. That Nazi shit is cute as hell. That's yeah, the cutest right. thing right. I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Panzer Schokolade. It's like, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like that's, a real, that's a real cute way to get you into math. It really is. <laughs> well, yeah, finding out that Hitler was just out of his mind on meth all the time made so much sense when I found that out. Yeah. Like, when you watch that uh, Downfall clip where he's just, like, raging. Is that what that movie's called? Downfall? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. when he's just, that was like, the Tom Cruise one? freaking yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That's You said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can't take it back. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to have a professional-looking website right from the start. And you don't need to know anything about programming or web design. They do all of that for you. And you don't even have to have good taste, though, if you listen to this podcast, I mean... Let's face it, you probably do. Uh, But if you have bad taste or need some help getting started, Squarespace has a ton of award-winning templates to use as the sort of base of your website. Uh, And then once you plug your info in, all of a sudden you have this beautiful working website that didn't take long to create and looks very professional. And if you ever have any questions, no matter how technical or trivial, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support can help you out. And they're real people who are actual Squarespace experts, not just robots reading from a script. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED. Today's episode is also sponsored by Blue Apron. You've heard me talk about Blue Apron before. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the United States. They deliver it right to your door. It's pretty easy and actually really fun to cook Blue Apron meals. So if you have spring fever and you're looking to retackle personal goals like getting fit, or cooking from home instead of ordering out all the time, Blue Apron is an amazing way to tackle those two goals and eat some really good food while you're at it. Some of the meals they have prepared for this month include beef teriyaki stir-fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice, and baked spinach and egg flatbread with sautéed asparagus and lemon aioli. See, they even hook up the vegetarians. Seriously, in like a half hour, you'll be cooking restaurant-quality meals in your own home. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com cracked. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Again, that's blueapron.com cracked. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. 
We, we have an audio, audio-visual one that I want to get to. We didn't, we didn't do too many music ones because I think people just generally assume that all music is... I looked into some and it's like, you know, they were drunk while they recorded this. I was like, big fucking deal. Yeah. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Keith Richards was drunk when he did a thing? Wow. <laughs> one time someone was particularly drunk. Uh, was noticeably drunk. Uh, so Iron Butterfly had just released their first album called Heavy uh, and it was doing so well that their drummer was supporting the band making pizza. And he came back one night after making pizza and the uh, primary composer for the band was drunker than usual. And he had been drinking entire bottles of Red Mountain wine, which I don't know what that is. Well, he'd been drinking against Stalin, who just had code (laughs) red and was just pounding (laughs) on Exactly. And he was playing this song on the keyboard uh, and singing it, and he was so drunk that it came out in Agata Davida instead of the intended in the Garden of Eden. Have you guys heard in Agata Davida? Yeah, so we're, we're gonna play it real quick for you. It's crazy listening and knowing he was trying as hard as he could to (laughs) say it right. (laughs) Just one fucking half asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I know. The pillow's in my way. (laughs) He did get a lot of the other words right, but he just couldn't get in the Garden of Eden. And it's crazy that they changed the title to accommodate his fuck up. Right. Very kind. It's not called the Degoration of Independi. Like, he, <laughs> he was drunk, but he fixed that shit. You don't acquiesce to the drunk fuck-up. They might have like, been like, look, man, you have a problem. We, we need to like, fix this. We need, we need to get this message across to you somehow. Yeah. And he was just like, ah, and it, and it was their biggest hit. <laughs> that reminds me of actually my favorite drunken rock and roller, Keith Moon, the legendary drummer of The Who who had many different drug problems, but the two stories that are really awesome, except that he died really young, one was (laughs) that they were leaving a hotel once in the limo, and he was like, hold on, I forgot something, I have to go back. And he made the limo drive them back, and like they missed their flight, because he had to go back to the hotel, run upstairs, and throw the television out the window into the pool. Because he had done that in every hotel, and he forgot to do it. And then the other thing is this, there's footage in a documentary where Pete Townsend's saying like, yeah, we knew he had a problem, but it only really sank in to him when we were at a party and Keith Richards came up and said, we're all really worried about you, mate. <laughs> like, that's Yeah, a that's problem. a red flag. Yeah, that's like, oh, maybe I should cut back of Keith Richards. Because I'm, I'm over worried here, about you. I'm over here trying to snort my dad's ashes, and you're, like, going crazy. Yeah, that's a little too steep. When you read Keith Richards' autobiography, he is the most responsible drug user. He's like, I knew that I could only use, like, this very small amount, or else I would have a problem, and then I would not be able to use cocaine for the rest of my life. So I just, like, he, he's, like, very scientific about it. And, like, you also hear from a lot of people in history that, like, 
he would like come up to them and be like, look, man, like what's going on with your life? That's bizarre. It makes you wonder that's if... That's an asshole. Like, that's, a, that's an asshole. Someone who does that. It does make you wonder, though, if instead of like my conception of him as the person who has the most addictive personality of all time, he may have the least. I think so. So he can like freely indulge in any drug and then just be like, I doesn't get through to me, mate. I'm fine. Well, I believe, I believe that he did that, though, because Freud developed his whole the way that he has people sit on a couch all the wrong things because he of thought, yes. coke because of coke he loved it he wrote like articles about it and then and then uh one of his friends died and then people were like maybe coke isn't good and he hid all those like i love coke articles right his first published work was called on cocaine and it was an entire book it was a intended. whole book. Yeah. Very subtle. It was right. a very yeah, subtle yeah. book. Not, not first... I'm on cocaine, like on the subject of right, cocaine, right, yeah. but very clearly written while on cocaine. The first book ever written by, on, and for cocaine. <laughs> right. That was the intended audience. It's cocaine. There's some great uh, quotes from like these letters he would write home to his wife. So he was like a very square person who like couldn't talk to other human beings without like getting really self-conscious. Freud, we're talking. Freud yeah. before he started dabbling in cocaine. But there, there are these letters like once he started using it that he would write home to his wife <laughs> promising to show her what happens to a woman in the hands of a wild man with cocaine in his blood. Disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. disappointment. Not fulfilled Not in much. any way. He's just gonna, he would be him being like, it's gonna be so great, I'm gonna be so good, you're gonna love it so much. And she's gonna be like, I'm tired. It's, right. it's a lot of waiting and unfulfilled promises. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the whole thing was. Do it or stop. <laughs> stop. Stop talking. Oh my God. And you know, it never happens. You know, he's someone who's in love with his own theories, so he's probably going like, "Yeah, and every kid wants to fuck their mom. We all want to fuck their moms. You're over there getting ready, but like, I'm thinking about my mom, and I want the boob, and then Freud, I want to kill my dad." Freud, are we? I'm, can I go to bed now? <laughs> this is a session. Now I'm billing you for the hour. But that's not like our theory that the talking cure came from his use of cocaine. Like one of his most respected biographers thinks that that's the only reason he was able to come up with it is because him and his friend Flacial, uh, not in quotes, that's just, yeah, that's just his name, uh, <laughs> would, would like stay up all night uh, doing cocaine and like talking to each other. And this square guy who like couldn't talk, in those letters to his wife, he would be like, it helps me with my tongue-tiedness. And I like, love that that means it was a huge like awakening to him that he's like, talking. Talking to yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. I must tell the world. <laughs> so it was like in these all night Coke binges that they came up with the idea for basically psychoanalysis. But then that guy he invented it with was the one who died of a cocaine overdose. So he was like, oh. <laughs> well, oh. maybe lose the cocaine part. And that's why we don't name our kids Flacial to this day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the, that's the moral we took from that. Um, he also had a little Hitler mustache. A lot of stuff went out of fashion when Flacial died. But we still, we still do Freud's thing. We still yeah. do therapy Flacio. that same way. Flacio. Wait, what? <laughs> we got that was how Someone I heard it had too. to yeah. say it. That was a, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was like, <laughs> I probably hear wrong. That's probably the <laughs> Francis Crick was experimenting with LSD when he discovered the double helix shape of DNA. Are all the stories going to convince me I should take a lot of drugs? <laughs> These are all very successful people. Yeah, are yeah. there any bad ones? 
Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of bad ones, actually. We'll get to those. Yeah, I mean, that's all there really is to that one. He's a big fan of uh, Doors of Perception, and basically, it's not like it, like, melted his mind into, like, a lava lamp of trippy shapes, and he was like a double helix. It was that he had been, like, working on this problem forever, and his theory was that using a small amount of LSD allowed him to, like, you know, make connections that the doors of human perception would, wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, but in his old age, I actually wrote an article about this, and I had, like, a disclaimer at the end of each one. Uh, in his old age, Crick, like, believed in alien shit and, like, kind of <laughs> sort of lost his mind. So there's your disclaimer. <laughs> I don't know what's so crazy about believing in aliens, Jay. Different like, podcast. There's yeah. your disclaimer. That's like your like blue collar comedy tour thing. It's just like Jack O'Brien. There's your disclaimer, and then standing ovation. But speaking of LSD, uh, Doc Ellis pitched a no hitter while on it. He was a uh, he was a Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher. And uh, a no-hitter is a very uh, big accomplishment in baseball, but it's, uh, it's different from a perfect game. Like, that's really, really cool. But uh, a no-hitter, like, literally the only requirement is that no one hits the ball that you threw. No one gets a hit. So you could lose a game, technically. As long as no one gets a hit, it's technically a no-hitter. So this guy did LSD before the game, and won somehow, but also walked eight people. Like, he walked eight people, which are like, by the way, that's the sign. We're just like, oh, there's a lot of people running around for a guy who hasn't given up any hits. Right. And uh, he also, Doc Ellis, um, uh, this is a quote from him where he said, uh, I've never pitched a game in the history of the major leagues uh, where I wasn't on some sort of drug. And a very successful player. He started, um, he was actually one of the first all-star games in history. Actually, the first all-star game in history where both uh, pitchers were black that started the game. And um, Doc Ellis was half of, uh, of that staff, yeah. and um, also a drug addict. Yeah, <laughs> also a horrible drug addict. His, his career was, was eventually cut short, like Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberries, from like having a drug problem. Exactly. But for the years that he was pitching, whoa, man. Yeah, I mean, that's that the thing LSD. about drugs. Oh, boy, are they great when they're great. And then after that, uh, you get kicked out of baseball. Which I think is a very relatable that's not thing a ba- to say. In my life, that's not a very stiff punishment. I could get kicked out of baseball. I don't care. You should try LSD. Then I can try yeah, LSD. Okay, all the drugs. The inventor of Coca-Cola was a cocaine addict who uh, put, just in the name. put a bunch of cocaine in his beverage. That's one of those urban legends that you hear and you're like, yeah, that can't be true. But uh, up until the early 20th century, Coca-Cola had a lot of cocaine in it. Like, <laughs> if, if you drank How much is a lot? Like, any well, you, cocaine. You know that picture where they show how much sugar is in a can? It's the same size pile, just <laughs> right. cocaine. It was, that explains it. Was, it. That's it was 8.45 milligrams. Uh, <laughs> oh, is that? Yeah. Oh, shit, a, is that real? You yeah, 400,000% real real. So, your daily value. So, which is about a fourth of what people would like, <laughs> would get high on today. What they would do is they had these like soda shops where uh, they would ask the person to like make the thing with like four times the syrup of normal ones. So they were getting high on cocaine. So it's like an espresso shot, but yeah, yeah get a yeah. little more cocaine in there, right, a little exactly. more. It's his birthday. He's nine. <laughs> Let's get a little more cocaine in there. Right. <laughs> He was a morphine addict. He discovered cocaine and was like, this stuff's great. It gets you off of morphine, uh, which is also how heroin came about. Everyone just wanted to get off of morphine. Uh, 
this was invented in the like 1880s at a time when there were like way more sodas than there are today back then. Dr. Pepper was invented back then as a cure for impotence. Coca-Cola is <laughs> one of the ones that lasted because it got a little head start from having cocaine in it. And now, obviously, there's no way to prove this, but I love the theory because the math works out. Because there's the, obviously the famous Coke misstep where they released new Coke that tasted different, but it always won blind taste tests. Like, everyone liked <laughs> it better. Then when it came out, it tanked, and they had to go back to Coke Classic. And there's a theory that it's because that time period still spanned the time where a healthy chunk of their constituents, their bodies remembered when Coke had cocaine in it, and right. they associate that flavor with that feeling. And even though they took cocaine out of the thing, they want that memory of that thing. Uh, which is just, a, the addictive power of cocaine is astounding. <laughs> they did a study where they got down to, uh, they hooked a single neuron up to a system where if it fires, it got a dose of cocaine. And it just exponentially fires more and more until it dies. <laughs> That's why they call it the drink that gives the world a smile, you know? It is. It is. They call With cocaine. their lip curled. There's a place in Atlanta called Coca-Cola World where uh, Coca-Cola is based. And spoiler alert, at the end of the tour, you get to try all the soda you want. But um, they have, like, the soda fountains uh, broken up by continent. So, you like, for instance, oh, this is what Coca-Cola tastes like in Africa. This is what Coca-Cola tastes like. So it's very, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. It's different? That's weird. It is different. Depending on the culture, like, if it's a culture that, you know, like, uh, intakes more sugar than other cultures, it'll be a very sugary drink. And if it's a culture that doesn't, um, it'll be obviously uh, less sugary. Are so, we sugary? Are we super sugary? We're pretty sugary. We're very sugary. So uh, there was a guy there, they give you a little thimble to drink out of, drink the sodas out of, because you drink a lot of soda. And then there was a guy there who was an adult man who brought like a red Solo cup, and he was <laughs> drinking out of it the whole time. And I'm like, oh, that's something to keep an eye on, for sure. And he had been filling it up with the, the tasters of sodas, and this grown man had eaten, uh, drank so much soda, he uh, just vomited in the middle of Coca-Cola world. We're like, oh, this is a grown guy. Guy and he's just like, I can't get enough. I love it so just, much. Yeah, I love it yeah. so good. And I love the culture. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he vomited all over the floor. It's one like, way so there to is make a too suicide. much of a good thing. This is the moral <laughs> of that story. And really this whole podcast. <laughs> there like, can be too much of a good thing. I like that that's his Disneyland. That's, that's where <laughs> yeah. he's got to be. <laughs> Honey, I am not going to be able to wake up tomorrow. I'm going <laughs> to... It's also astounding how... If you are a dominant corporation for 100, 200 years, all you make is sugar water, you will find every possible fucking thing to do with it. Like, I love how Coke <laughs> is filled with, like, highly paid scientists figuring out how to gauge it for the African market. You make sugar in water. It's right. crazy. But how but much to, sugar? They have to keep making new... You always need a new product rollout. Like, what right. are you going to do? The amount of science that has gone into designing Coke... For the, and over potato the course chips of and the stuff 20th like that. century is probably greater than the amount of science that's gone into like looking for a cure for cancer because there's just way more money in coke. Like, yeah, ironically, they say like a lot of our nutritional information, the frontier of that, is driven by fast food science, and then they learn that the opposite of that is good nutrition, right. and then like technology is all for porn. The most sophisticated technology is. Someone wants to have weird sex with this box. Oh, but we could use uh, let's it not use slang. to save the world. Let's use that. <laughs> yeah, porn is usually at the forefront of all technology. Porn, drugs, fast food. These 
are the saviors of the human race. Right, yeah. is, is what we're saying. And our sponsors tonight. So thank you. <laughs> those are all them. of those things. <laughs> I, I love that just all of porn. <laughs> yeah. And corporations, drink corporations. <laughs> I heard this a while back and looked into it last night to confirm it's true. And I don't know if people have heard it, but it's just a super fun factoid to me. Churchill, during World War II, was so the story goes, exhausted from the rigors of leading, slash drunk, who knows what ratio, that often his famous speeches that he did every week that like bolstered the troops were delivered by an actor because he was too like shit-faced to do it intelligibly. And it's the guy who uh, originated the voice of Winnie the Pooh. Like late in life was like, that's right, I was Winston Churchill. And he even did, there's uh, one of his most famous addresses, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them on the blah, blah, blah. That's Winnie the Pooh doing that. Well, wait, really? Winnie the Pooh yeah. and Churchill are the same it's body the guy type. guy did the voice for Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Same and body type, yeah. Same body type. <laughs> after it came out at the end of Churchill's life, they literally had him go back and re-record the speeches so they could like replace the fake ones in the archives with the real ones. Which is bullshit. Let it stand that Winnie the Pooh gave those speeches. It's yeah. great. I find that comforting because I love Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'd love it. I'd love it if I heard Winnie the Pooh just give all speeches that affect history. That to be, be clear, great. he didn't do the Winnie the Pooh voice. <laughs> no. It was the Tigger voice for all the Churchill speeches. <laughs> I feel like Eeyore is the most British out of that entire cast. The Nazis are coming. <laughs> <laughs> With Churchill also, he, well, his favorite was champagne, and the, oh, the company he, which is weird, uh, but the company, he, his favorite was a company called Paul Roger, and they named a new champagne after him after he died, because he had bought so much of their product, they felt like they owed him one. And also, he did not think about how much his drinks cost. Like, he ran up massive debts just buying cases and cases of alcohol for himself. And at one point, the British government just paid it off for him because either they were going to lose him over like the legal trouble of the debt or they could pay for his, all his booze and then it'd be fine. Wow, it's like Norm from Cheers, except the treaty will fall apart because your bar <laughs> yeah. tab is so high. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Please. Yeah, and the only other one I like definitely wanted to get out is it turns out there's a huge spike in drunken public orgies during the Black Plague. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. And I didn't know that, like, I didn't have that in the mental image. Because naturally you'd think everyone would not be in the mood, right? But it was literally, I always forget that there are times in history, like now for some people, where they earnestly believed it was the end of the world. So it was people saying, I am the last man on earth will you have sex with me now? And people going like, fine, let's just get drunk and have sex in the public square because we're all going to die of the plague in a few days, which is just a crazy to me that that like amidst the chaos of the doctors with the giant beak faces going around, there's like <laughs> eyes wide shut happening in the square. <laughs> and dudes pulling carts saying, bring out your dead. There's like people not knowing if it's a corpse or someone having an orgy. Right. Like... Madness! <laughs> right, because they didn't know how germs spread, so they were just, like, having sex in, that the, was, uh, they're like, in the street. Sex is probably fine. I right. think it's witches that do the plague, <laughs> right? right? Right. And then the history was written by the one guy who got left out, so he's like, no, it was just all death. There was just death. Right. Uh, no one was hooking up. The yeah. beat guy was really respected, uh, really great. Nobody, nobody ever asked if they could join and got rejected. <laughs> 
<laughs> Yo, I'm gonna do you so hard, a guy in a robe is gonna think you're dead and put you in a wooden cart. It's like, oh, what is that pickup line? <laughs> well, my entire family died this week, so that sounds good to me. Let's go. There was like a competitive town with the Puritan settlement that was basically like Animal House. Like it was the Animal House version of the Puritans. Like they were just like getting drunk constantly and like partying with the uh, one of the native tribes and just all was having like big Was it a like tribe full orgies. of stodgy deans? And they would go over and hassle the tribe? No, no, no. The, the tribe was like part of Animal House. The Puritans were uh, the stodgy deans. And as is wont to happen in history, the stodgy deans like eventually like arrested them all and sent them back to England because they were like having way too much fun. So that, that's not, I, I thought you were going to say, and that's how we got Rhode Island. No. <laughs> no, that's how, but it's the... no, that's that's just true, man. That's just history, you know? Just go, going off of the Churchill one, uh, the fact that Howard Cosell was like just hammered the whole time for his whole career. He's like considered an American treasure and he's like miserable and drunk like at all times. A bastard. Yeah, like, just, just the straight worst. straight up. He like How- Howard threw up. <laughs> he, <laughs> Sorry, you go tell ahead. it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just want to say uh, Howard Cosell was a very uh, infamous uh, sports commentator, and I, like like old white guys in general who speak for a living are generally alcoholics. <laughs> <I> mean, like, <laughs> but like as you were saying, if you like if you want to finish your thought, like he was in a booth one night and he got for particularly Monday night drunk. Football. Yeah, yeah, and he got so drunk that he threw up on his play by play guy's boots. It's, like, really, like, ugly, actually. On like, air. Like, yeah. you need to understand, like, this guy was at work. Like, it, his job, he was at a job, and yeah. he vomited on his co-host's boots, and they were just like, well, you know, like, every once in a while, you've, <laughs> you throw up on your friend's boots. Anyway, here's a couple million dollars. Right. You know but what I mean? It was so weird. It is another one like Rockstar, where I, I'm like, well... He can be drunk. He's just talking. I don't know. <laughs> but he yeah. is considered he's like, not like piloting a, a ship or anything, you know. There is yet yeah, less damage than if like Nixon, for instance, you know. Oh like, yeah, I'm we sure need to we'll talk about to Nixon because that's going like, to actually make you guys feel less lonely. Made me feel less lonely in the it world. It was yeah. It was so upsetting. It made me feel less upset. And that's a tease. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what you're getting at. Spill yeah. it. Nixon was uh, Nixon was drunk for a lot of his presidency, and especially during the Watergate times. And uh, when he was, like, sober Nixon, you know, he would uh, work out, like, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, you know, and treaties against anti-ballistic missiles and stuff. And when he was drunk, he would order people to nuke countries. <laughs> he, in 1969, he was just m- mad once because the North Koreans shot down a U.S. spy plane, and he told his team to nuke North Korea. That was how we, we were going to retaliate. And they just, like, very politely didn't. Uh, right. It was fine. He, he like, got it's the fine. generals on the phone, it's and, like, they were, like, moving things along towards that. And then Nixon hung up, and Kissinger called back immediately after and was like, just wait till tomorrow when he sobers up. And, like, yeah. hung up the phone. <laughs> well, they also, after the fact, they interviewed, uh, it was a pilot named Bruce Charles, who received an order like, hey, your plane, you're going to go hit this North Korean airstrip. And he was like, I have a nuclear bomb in my plane. And they were like, yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then he got another order to not do it hours later. Like, it was before the mission started, but it, it, there was a while where he was just going around the base like, well, I guess it's the nuke day today. It's coffee. <laughs> I guess the world ends today. <sighs> All right. 
And then also in 1973, there was a series of events where it was October 20th, Nixon fired the special prosecutor who was in charge of investigating him. It's an event that has never again happened in U.S. history. <laughs> and as this was going on, the Yom Kippur War is happening where uh, Israel's being attacked by Arab countries. And uh, what's happening is the Soviets and the Americans might both intervene. And the Soviets are talking about sending troops in, which would probably mean the Americans getting involved with nukes, you know. And Nixon was at rock bottom and extra drunk, and so Henry Kissinger just kind of took care of the whole thing. That was the whole plan. Kissinger, like, like yeah. called the White House, and whoever was, like, watching Nixon at that point was like, he's asleep, and he was like, can you rouse him? And he was like, no. And that was, like, code for he's fucking blacked out. Like, yeah, don't, yeah. don't even worry about it. Can you draw on his face? <laughs> I, I do. Yes, love, Mr. Kissinger. I do yeah. love that Kissinger was that friend who's, like, uh, you know, Nixon's, like, says something, like, terrible, and then he's the friend who's, like, don't worry, he's fine. I'm sorry, he's super drunk. Let me give you a beer. I'll buy you a beer. I'm so sorry about him. He's so nice when he's not drunk. <laughs> Kissinger's, like, he's the really world's biggest guy. enabler, basically. <laughs> like some people when they get drunk like their accent comes out and Nixon whenever he got drunk he would just tell people to nuke countries was yeah, like right, just, yeah. it was just what he did it's just where his mind went there's a, a secret service agent who was watching him and the topic of Cambodia came up and the quote says they were half in the tank sitting around the pool drinking and Nixon got on the phone and said bomb the shit out of them <laughs> And then Kissinger said about that, if the president had his way, there would be a nuclear war each week. Where do we get to the part where it made you feel really good and warm inside? Because this shit is definitely happening right now. Like, well, fucking Trump doesn't drink, you know? Right. Like maybe, which is actually more concerning. Right, it's like right. at least Nixon had an excuse. You but know what I mean? It's borderline I, the scariest were, thing about him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that he's stone cold thing. sober. It's like, doing oh, wait, all of so this. he's been sober saying all this shit? Yeah. <laughs> it made me feel good because our country has survived basically four years of having a complete fucking lunatic in the office who was like, yeah, more than that. Nukem, nukem. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I guess he was in there, but like he was in the final spirals of alcoholism like for four years. Yeah. He was at the nuke them point of alcoholism uh, for like four years. I'm sure Trump has like had to be talked down from like. Yeah. In the first hundo, you think? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think he hit that, probably. He just looked around the table like, nuke, nuke. People were like, no, we don't, <laughs> no, we don't think so. Save your aces for the end game. <laughs> well, that's Wait, a- what makes me feel better is not just those ones, but I've heard five or six different accounts of people in the machinery who were able to, like, even though like, all they're supposed to do is fire the nuke when they're told to, still went like, uh, give me more information before I fire the nuke. God bless those people. That's what Stand makes me feel better Petrop, that they yeah. exist. Yeah. Uh, there was a great, I think it was a dollop I just listened to, about a guy who just repeatedly, he was one of the guys with the keys in the silo, and he just repeatedly wrote asking if he was allowed to know, if I get a phone call that says fire the nuke, what does it mean? Did the president decide it? Were there checks and balances? I don't even know how that order got to me. And they're like, you're court-martialed and your name will be expunged from all military records. Right. But it's cool that people are like, 
yeah. at least there's that hesitation. Just one last thing on the Nixon thing. So this article that we're using as a source was written in 2000. That's when it kind of came out that he... The height of Nixon mania. Right, right exactly. That, that's why none of you have heard it, because nobody gave a shit by that point. But it's just funny that their uh, article says... Meanwhile, the Washington Star News published an extraordinary speculative piece about what would happen if a U.S. president became mentally ill. And that, that piece is like being written every day now right. in our time. But like in 2000, people were like, could you imagine? Hypothetically. <laughs> right. You read a very interesting piece, mommy. <laughs> that Bad Reagan impression? Yeah. No, no, no. He wasn't still in office. Well, also, like, that, I know that Nixon story does make me feel better, but it would make me feel the most better if the story was, like, Nixon was drunk and trying to nuke a country, but luckily his stupid son with an idiot face jumped in and prevented the... Because, like, I don't, know, I don't know if there's a Kissinger currently, and I'm really hoping uh, one of them is. That would be great. <laughs> Who would it be, though? Like, you know Bannon. what I mean? Bannon has all the gravitas of the Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. Oh, someone oh, actually was like, people are getting crushed oh. inside. Don't mention Stephen. <laughs> not in a live audience. Not now. Not here. <laughs> Stephen King was really high in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Now that's Back. a Stephen I want to hear about. Yeah. Uh, he didn't remember writing Cujo. So I didn't I don't remember reading it. <laughs> I didn't realize that I thought he was an alcoholic cocaine addict for most of his career. But what happened is he was an alcoholic in the 70s, recovered from that, and then became the world's biggest coke addict in the 80s. And so, like, all his 80s work is, like, his cocaine work. But, yeah, he, d he doesn't remember Cujo. He was so high on cocaine. Uh, he wrote the Tommyknockers. He was so high on cocaine. <laughs> uh, Misery uh, is supposed to be about his relationship right. with cocaine. If people listening at home want to... Try cocaine. Google... <laughs> Go see an amazing actual person on cocaine. Look at the uh, first trailer for uh, Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. This was, <laughs> this was the uh, movie that, where they were like, well, he probably can direct a movie. He's, he's written books. Uh, those are the, the same, same thing, thing, right? And he decided to appear in all of the trailers himself, and he's just fucking wired. It's, it's really incredible. But I do think... With Stephen King thinking that he can direct a movie because he's so <laughs> fucked up, and Grant, who wasn't a fall-down drunk, but he was an alcoholic throughout his career, who was an alcoholic enough to drink on the battlefield, which is pretty drunk. I sent that email. Uh, we have, like, a cool little chain behind the scenes uh, where we send, like, topics, and I was a little buzzed one night, and I'm like, oh, I want to fucking talk about Ulysses as Grant because the idea of someone drunk on a battlefield, like, back then, before there's weapons of mass destruction is hilarious to me. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk about that. And then I did research, and... I, uh, I looked up this article. It was... Boo. Boo. Figure it out yourself. There was an article uh, in the New York Times, um, like, opinion section. I'm like, all right, like, I want to see, like, what this is. And it was basically uh, the theory of the article was, oh, like, Ulysses S. Grant was not an alcoholic more than anyone else in that time period was. Because Ulysses S. Grant, like, everyone, like, like we were talking about earlier, like, oh, if there was no water, you would just drink booze. Like, you could just drink booze all the time. And it wasn't, you know, like, a, a taboo thing and he was also five foot seven 
130 pounds. So, like, booze is just going to hit you. Which you cannot quicker. tell from any picture of him. No. I no. imagine him as, like, a I thought he was dude. eight feet tall. Like, like <laughs> any person from that period is like, oh, you know, like, uh, like uh, I almost said Reagan as if I respect him. I'm like, oh, yeah, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Three and a half inches tall. Um, but... <laughs> But Grant, um, like they were talking about, it, and I'm reading this article, and they're like, "Oh no, everyone would just get you know blackout drunk during that period." And then there were different um, you know notable news things where like, "Oh, one time Grant during a military review where like you know the the army puts on their best you know uniforms and they all line up and um, everything's clean," where he like just fell off a horse, <laughs> and the guy was like, "No, it was a it was an angry horse," and I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting. It was an angry horse." And there was another one where like, "Oh yeah, one time uh, Ulysses says Grant, he was like." mumbling his words together but uh, he like had bit his tongue apparently while smoking a cigar I'm like oh that's interesting these sound like things he said (laughs) right and I'm like and I read the byline it was by Ulysses Grant no it was like I'm like oh this guy's just a grand apologist where after a certain period of time it's like oh he fell down on ice once it's like I've fallen down on ice and every single time has been when I was blackout drunk Yeah. so so after a certain yeah Ulysses Grant was a fucking alcoholic is what I'm trying right I think because he at least whether it was real or not he got the reputation even in his own time. Right. There's letters there are quotes him. from Lincoln being like, he's my kind of alcoholic <laughs> because he wins the war for us. Right. So I think the thing that I came away from all this research with is that it makes you really go with decisions and like lose all inhibition. So like the thing that was holding the Union Army back was their uh, fear of death. They didn't want to all be like armies have that slaughtered. Problem, they, they didn't want to like <laughs> all of their troops to die and so they were like kind of more defensive than they needed to be because they had more troops so they could win a war of attrition but Ulysses S. Grant was just drunk driving the Union Army around the country just like attacking everybody because he just like didn't have inhibition the same way that Stephen King didn't have inhibition about being like I can't direct a movie are you fucking kidding me like it's just like it makes you go with whatever you think you should be doing. General McClellan, that was his name, right? Like, was driving yeah. the Union Army like it was a Fiat, and <laughs> then, like, Grant took over and drove it like it was a Hummer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like a like, tank, ah, just, like, going in. over things. Or, <laughs> according to your apologist historian, it was just an angry horse that started <laughs> all the yeah, war. Yeah, it was a weird horse. <laughs> I can't do anything. This horse is telling me to attack. <laughs> this horse gave me a weird look. <laughs> We're running low on time, and... I just realized that I never told you guys what to be thinking about to uh, share your stories. So their minds are just completely blank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we haven't exactly. right. I didn't them tell you what to think. Bunch of empty vessels. Um, you can't hear. Those listening to the podcast can't see it, but there's eyes. They haven't blinked once in the past hour. <laughs> just nine minutes. Like yeah. Just, I guess if you have a good historical drinking story, uh, you can come up at the end or now because we are at the end. But are there other stories you guys want to hit while we're wrapping up? I feel like baseball is pretty lighthearted, just as a broad thing. When we were talking about the Nazis using a bunch of amphetamines in World War II, the American army did too. Apparently they uh, had 72 million tablets consumed by the Allies in World War II. And uh, so a lot of people came back, and some of them were baseball players, and then the major leagues, people started using amphetamines to like, 
get through 160-odd games a year, you know, make it fun. And then it just became standard, like, trainers would give them to people. Uh, Willie Mays had liquid amphetamine in his locker, which is apparently a thing you can do. They called it, like, his red juice, but it was liquid, straight-up liquid amphetamines. He's one of the greatest players of all time. That is fun-sounding. Yeah, it's red yeah, juice. Yeah. And then, uh, and you think, like, oh, that must have been a long ago of your thing, but they didn't actually make a rule against it until 2005, and they just tagged it onto a steroid rule. Like, they didn't even necessarily <laughs> think it was something you needed to do with. So, like, basically any great moment of baseball that you know of, at least some of the guys were probably on amphetamines during the game. Yeah, and that's why uh, baseball sucks now. Because no one's on drugs. <laughs> Nobody's on yeah. speed. This yeah. sucks. Yeah. Oh, what a bunt. What a gorgeous, ex- riveting bunt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. you need to convince these people that baseball sucks, by the way, I think. Yeah, when, when Tony Gwynn retired, yeah. he said that he estimated about 50% of position players would be on amphetamines in a game uh, all the time. And players didn't, like, deny it. They just, like, got mad at him. They were like, why did you tell anybody? <laughs> yeah. That was our thing. a lot, narc. Yeah. So all presidents, all sports heroes, all war heroes... Message received. <laughs> I will force myself to cram amphetamines into my system and we, achieve greatness. I think we have a story, but I'm not sure. I, I think I we see do. You. Hey. Hey. Hi. I'm yeah. drunk so. right now. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I want to talk about a little bit more was Nixon and him being drunk and having people having to give excuses for him. And uh, I don't remember the exact incident, but another incident similarly happened, and it wasn't like at night, so they couldn't say he was sleeping. So they had to co- start coming up with other excuses. So like, you know, they called, and they're like, we need to talk to the president. Some major disaster is happening, and they're like, well, you know, we can't find him. And just coming up with this excuse of pretending not to know where the president is when you're talking to the White House is which just- is also that's like. Also your main job, so yeah, that's a like crazy excuse. how do you not excuse? know who the president is? Well, we need to talk to Nixon. Like, he's, he's missing. <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> he lost <laughs> his yo-yo. Call back. <laughs> that's all I had. That's amazing. Yeah. What's your name? My name is Spencer. Hey, nice hey to Spencer. Meet you. Thank you. Good one. That's what I don't get is the level of respect or whatever or proprietary, like... You would think you'd have people all around Nixon going, this is crazy, he's drunk all the time. But I love how like Kissinger respectfully waited until all the dust had settled and thankfully no nukes did happen. And then he's like, by the way, the guy who was running the nukes was drunk all the time, thought you should know. Like, why don't we know while it's happening? What the fuck, people? Welcome to this hostile energy I have today. <laughs> That was so hostile. Uh, so this isn't actually a story. It's just What's your something name? I. Fa- My name's Michael. Yeah, like, like you. Hello, uh, Michael. <laughs> Alex steals people's names. That's no, it's my name. It's mine now. Well, everybody knows Michaels are superior people, right? Swim. True that. Yeah. Anyway, um, so this was just something I found interesting. You, were, uh, Jack, you were talking about how when people are drunk or on drugs, they just kind of you know, shoot straight into their decision, which you guys had an article on psychopaths, which is something that they do a lot. And in the book, uh, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, the author, he got, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, where they use magnets to sort of change your brain state. And he did that to get his brain sort of turned into that of a psychopath. And what happened was he was like, it's kind of like being drunk, except I'm not sloshy. So I think the real lesson is we're all being led by psychopaths and really drunk ones, too. Huh. 
That sounds wow. like a Marvel origin. That's like, <laughs> yeah. To the point where you'd go like, that's so dumb. Why would you make your brain into a psychopath's brain? Why did he even do that? I like that he said that you get sloshy when you yeah. drunk. Yeah. That's a fun <laughs> way to describe it. But that's great. So, yes, yeah, well, he, he said sluggish. Oh, it's, sluggish. It's like being drunk without the attendant sluggishness. And also, psychopaths are more likely to be world leaders and more likely to drink. So it all goes together, I guess. Aww. Or lead a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, it's... I Sad. still wish it was sloshy. I really like well, the term Well, it was. Sloshy. Your your word was better. Don't, you, you made up don't a better word. Keep word. that. Well, thank you. Yeah, copyright No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you? I, I, I think thank that's it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, any others? Thank you. Woo! Any others we want to hit you guys? Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was written high on cocaine. Oh, they're fictional, Jack. It's okay. That one's okay. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Jack. He drank that potion. He shouldn't have done that. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, also opium. Oh, yeah. Opium. Yeah. Fun fact. When opium was the it drug. Yeah. And then he wrote it into his character and nobody suspected a thing. Right. Did he play violin? super well and I think he pretty crimes. much was Sherlock. Okay. He was like a medical so that's how he knew all of like the medical lingo. But then he also liked opium. I was hoping he just used that he's an opium addict and then he added like and I play violin. Think mm. about that. Yeah. And uh, and I solve mysteries. <laughs> Alf was a pedophile. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. What were we talking about? <laughs> We did talk about that drug earlier called Pervitin, and all I could think about right, that's that where it came sounds from. like it would curb pedophilia. I think that's <laughs> what it was. Not just a random statement. That was what it was. Right. And they would nickname it Pido Chocolate. <laughs> Wait, we also can't end on that. Yeah, we really can't. I'm so sorry. So Frankenstein was... <laughs> was written... There, there's like this famous like weekend where everybody went and like told scary stories, you know, and that's Mary Shelley told a scary story to her husband or whatever. They were like so fucked up, all of them, to the point that her husband at one point stood up and started screaming that Mary Shelley's nipples had turned into eyes, which I don't eyes? know. Eyes. Uh -huh. What's crazy is she didn't use that in the book. I know. You'd think you'd use you'd that. You'd think that would It's been. right there for you. They're cutting corpses and putting them together, you could have eye nipples in there. <laughs> right. Yeah, we had to wait true. for the Aaron Eckhart version for eye nipples. Right. Was there a Hemingway thing about how Hemingway was actually not that big of an alcoholic? Did you send that email? Or what, am I getting the... He was all the time that he wasn't writing. Yeah. But, right. he w but I think, I don't know, I found a quote, but I don't know if it's true. So uh, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, that he said he couldn't write unless he was drunk. Right. So he really there's, liked it. So there's a famous quote that's uh, write drunk, edit sober from Hemingway. So we also have a quote where he is denying that he ever said that and saying, I would never write drunk because I'm a professional. And in fact, Faulkner writes drunk. And I, <laughs> and I, can, and I can tell on the page when he's had his second drink. So, so Hemingway just like shat on Faulkner and was like, peace. So that will go down in history as like impossible to verify because right. who knows whether he was lying or not. Yeah, yeah he might have just been drunk when he said the quote the first time and he's like, I never said that. Yeah, I think that's all the time we have, but thank you guys for coming out. Thank you guys for coming out. Thank, thank you, you so much. Woo! Woo! 
All right, that was our episode. Uh, and as promised, here are a few more anecdotes to act as a disclaimer slash dose of realism, since alcohol and drugs don't usually give people superpowers, unless you consider telling people who are speaking quieter than you, shh, a superpower. So first, a quick one from history to put our epic bender in perspective. So Russia's national alcoholism wasn't always so winning. During the Bolshevik Revolution, where the working-class communists overtook the czarist autocracy under Lenin, uh, it was like a genuine uprising of the people, but it had to pause for a week when the people got to the czar's wine cellar, which contained $91 million worth of the world's best wine and liquor. Yeah, the entire city was basically worthless while there was still booze in that wine cellar to the point that Lenin had to come to town with an army and like start throwing the bottles of booze into the river and pouring them out into the snow, at which point people started eating the makeshift booze snow cones and diving in and swimming after the bottles. Uh, eventually, they broke most of the bottles, flooded the wine cellar. I think a couple of people died trying to swim in and get the bottles that were still in there. All right, so that's Russia. I want you to keep that story in mind because our next story is about someone being so drunk the Russians are like, you need to rethink some things. So there's this U.S. Air Force Major General who got sent to Moscow to interface with a team of Russians. He was traveling with a team of military officials. And this particular general, actually, he was a major general. He oversaw three wings of our nuclear fleet. So basically the CEO of three huge teams that it could be argued do one of the most important jobs the military has, guarding our nukes, making sure they're in tippy-top and ready to go at a moment's notice, all without blowing us all up. So on the way to Russia, they have to stop in Zurich for a layover. A couple of the guys decide they're going to go grab a beer, which they do, but the major general doesn't leave with them after that first beer. And when he does come out of the bar, this is from the report filed uh, when he was fired a few months after this. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to say his name because it's not necessary for the enjoyment of the story, and I kind of feel bad for the guy. He's clearly got a drinking problem and decided this trip to Russia was the time to test that thesis. Uh, anyways, he comes out of the bar. They're still just on the way to Russia, and from the official report filed by the people who were on the trip with him, quote, the major general was visibly agitated about the long delay at Zurich. He appeared drunk and in the public area talked loudly about the importance of his position as commander of the only operational nuclear force in the world and that he saves the world from war every day. That last one, just very embarrassing, which I'm sure made the people in that airport feel good, by the way, the decorated general slurring about how he's got his finger on the button. Uh, so we're off to a good start. The next day after they get there, uh, I'll just read you the report word for word. Departure from Marriott Hotel. Major General was 45 minutes late for departure. Initial briefing by Russians. His behavior perceived by some as rude. Lunch. Russians not pushing alcohol. He makes approximately nine toasts during the banquet. The Major General makes comments regarding Syria and Mr. Eric Snowden, 
I'm assuming he meant Edward, but he made comments about Eric Snowden, quote, that were not well received by the Russians. Witnesses recounted that the major general drank more than most of the other participants. Ms. and then redacted stated the major general announced he had met two hot women the night before. So that's just lunch. Up next, a field trip to the monastery. This should go well. Probably want to be quiet and respectful of the sacred religious building your hosts have brought you to. At the monastery, quote, the major general was slurring his speech and continually interrupted the tour guide. The only thing I like more than interrupting a tour guide at a monastery that you don't have the first fucking clue about is this next part. Quote, the major general also left the group to go with another tour guide. No, you interrupted. I'm going with this group. Uh, by the way, the two hot women he was bragging about having met, turns out they were spies. So after dragging ass on the walk through Red Square and wandering off from the group, he convinces the entire group of military leaders he's supposed to be on an important diplomatic mission with, he convinces all of them to go to a Mexican restaurant because he thinks these two young hot women who want to hang out with a 65-year-old military official, nothing suspicious about that, he knows they're going to be there, and that's where magic happens. Quote, Mr. Redacted recalled Major General dancing with one of the women at La Cantina, Quote, yeah, I think he might have danced with one of them. Um, yes, yeah, I think they did dance one time. It was a fast dance, I think, as far as I can remember. This is still part of that quote. While at La Cantina, witnesses stated that the Major General had alcohol, big surprise, and kept trying to get the band to let him play with them. According to Mr. Redacted, the band did not allow the Major General to play with them. And... I think that's plenty. Uh, I'm told it was a Beatles cover band, which makes sense, it being a Mexican restaurant. Anyways, yeah, that guy's amazing. He spent all three days shit-faced, comes home, acts like nothing happened. One of the people he was there with tells someone, and he gets called into like his superior's office, and he's like, what's this about, Russia? Look, I have a meeting. Can't this wait? Uh, and then they fired him. So that's my disclaimer. Some of those stories probably made alcohol and drug use sound fun and almost productive, but some stories about alcohol and drug use are notable for the reason the Major General's was notable. People find incredible, like almost impressively elaborate ways to humiliate themselves. All right, let's move on to some footnotes. We're going to link off to some cracked articles about historic events you didn't realize everyone was drunk for, the most important things done while blackout drunk, the most unexpectedly awesome parties in history, the greatest things ever accomplished while high, the most inspiring things ever accomplished while drunk, epic bouts of drunkenness that made the history books, great works of literature written while wasted, and then we're going to link off to a article from The Guardian called Drunk in Charge that was about Nixon, not the most well-titled article, but it really is an amazing read. We're going to link off to an AV Club article about Doc Ellis's no-hitter, the video of Bill Clinton laughing at drunk Boris Yeltsin, which I highly recommend. And we're also going to link off to an amazing podcast, Blake Wexler's new podcast called Yaboos Ya News. 
in which Blake and his co-host Georgia get drunk and go over news stories. We'll link off to it. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, and there will be a link to it in the episode description. And as I mentioned last week, my second playlist is up on Spotify. If you miss my music picks, we'll be linking to it in the footnotes and episode description. Or you can search Maylist, all one word, on Spotify, M-A-Y-L-I-S-T. And I think it's pretty good. I'm happy with it. There's some deeper cuts off the new Kendrick album, a Drake song that has one of my favorite Young Thug verses ever. An old outcast song that's been stuck in my head ever since my son was born because it features a baby babbling and laughing throughout it, but it's also a good song. A couple newish songs that are pretty popular, I'm the One, XO, Tour Life, and Magnolia. Logic just released a new album, and he has this one older song that I really like from a few years back, so I put that on here. And then we kind of slow things down with a little OK Computer, this Beautiful demo version of the song Homeless from the making of Paul Simon's Graceland. This moody blues song, Your Wildest Dreams, that I just heard in a lift the other day and was like, man, I haven't heard this since I was a kid. Why have I ever listened to anything that's not this song? So, yeah, I know that's a lot of pressure on that song. Uh, There's a song about a wedding by Hamilton Lighthouser, the Walkman singer, off his fantastic album with Rostam from... Vampire Weekend, and a song by The National that sounds like Someone Saved My Life Tonight era Elton John, and about 10 other songs I'm not telling you about. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, I tweeted a link to it the other day if you have trouble finding it. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks to Engineer Brett for putting it together. You can follow him at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, On Twitter, you can follow me at Jack underscore O-B-R-I-E-N. And we'll be back next week with more podcast. Talk to you then. everyone thanks for listening and remember if you've ever wanted to see a live show from your favorite podcasts i have great news for you the three-day podcast festival now hear this is happening in new york city this september and early bird tickets are on sale now this year's lineup includes great earwolf shows like how did this get made comedy bang bang politically reactive and who charted plus more of your favorites from gimlet crooked media public radio and radiotopia this is a great value one ticket gets you access to all 25 live shows throughout the weekend and buy now to save up to 35% on your ticket. That's 60 bucks. Now hear this is September 8th through 10th in New York City. Come see great podcasts, meet the hosts, and make some new friends. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets. That's nowhearthisfest.com. Act fast to save 35%. Early bird pricing ends May 29th. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.